This is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, American intervention in other countries' elections. It's been going on for years. Worse than that, toxins in your body, lots of them. Saving Earth's climate by building oil pipelines. And sex on the mind and in the brain. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. In the great debate about climate change, we've all heard that you can't attribute specific weather events to it, or that climate change doesn't cause any single weather event, although it can make such events more intense, or people who scoff at the idea of climate change, saying, it's winter, it's cold and snowy in the winter, or it's July, it's supposed to be hot in July. If it were 90 degrees in January, that would be abnormal. But is that the way climate change works? No simple answer to this question. One specific weather phenomenon, bomb cyclones, are a case in point. A bomb cyclone, an old meteorology term that's gained popular currency, is a large, low-pressure system, kind of like a hurricane, that intensifies very quickly due to a very quick and dramatic drop in air pressure. Although bomb cyclones themselves are not new, their frequency and intensity seem to be on the rise, as we've seen this winter along the U.S. eastern seaboard, first in January, a second time this past week, causing huge havoc in Boston and New York City. Are bomb cyclones caused by climate change? Well, it's hard to say. Climate change almost certainly plays a part. Long-term, wide-scale changes in atmospheric status, like steadily rising CO2 levels, for example, are going to influence the weather. In the case of bomb cyclones, Warming global surface temperatures are affecting the jet stream, that river of wind traveling through the upper atmosphere. Sometimes it develops a a kink or a loop that pulls winds further south or north than they would normally go. Warm and cool air masses collide and bang! There is some evidence that climate change promotes these loops, and those rising temperature and ocean levels boosts the frequency and intensity of storms. There are few, if any, events in life, weather-related or otherwise, that have a single cause. Life is more complicated than that. But we do know one thing, or should. If we wait until we're sure of everything, then we'll do nothing. And the consequences of that could be more dire than uncertainty. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
with my baby, you know? And the rain be coming down. Johnny Winter from his 1977 release, Nothing But the Blues, featuring James Cotton on harp, Pine Top Perkins on piano, and Muddy Waters assisting on vocals. This is The Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. As special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential elections gathers momentum, some suggest that Americans are getting a taste of their own medicine. An American academic has been documenting the history of electoral interventions by the great powers, both overt and covert. His database suggests that the U.S. has been very active in this department. Dolph Levin is a postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. So, Dolph Levin, tell me what your, your database reveals so far in terms of how many times the United States has intervened in one way or another in the elections of foreign countries and, and the track record for the Soviet Union or for Russia. Well, uh, for mine, according to my data set, between 1946 and 2000, the United States intervened 81 times in elections, either covertly 
or overtly, and uh, the Soviet Union or Russia intervened in about 36 cases uh, during this period. So the United States over the years has been much more active in this regard than the Russians have. Yes, uh, to the best of my knowledge, during this period, the United States was the one who did the most interventions of this kind in elections in other countries. Can you define uh, interference in elections for me? How do countries like uh, the United States and Russia interfere in the electoral electoral processes of other countries? I'm sure that they use different techniques, the Russians and the Americans. Yeah, so I basically define uh, electoral intervention as basically you know, a costly act that is designed to determine the election results in favor of one of the two sides. And the United States and the Soviet Union or Russia used a variety of methods for this purpose. Like, for example, one method was the provision of campaign funds for the side that they favored in various ways. In some cases, we, thought, we know literally it was, you know, big bags of big black bags with cash being brought in, you know, to hotel rooms and given, you know, to the other side. Um, in other cases, you know, it was these public and specific threats or promises by a representative of that country, you know, like, for example, a week before the election saying, you know, if you vote for X, you can forget about getting any more foreign aid from, from us. Or, you know, if you vote for Y, you can expect that we will increase uh, foreign aid to you, so to speak, or we will give you any, something else that you really wanted. Another message included, you know, training locals of the side we preferred in various, you know, campaigning techniques and, you know, mobilization, what is known as, you know, get out the vote tactics. Another message, which is not, which I call, you know, dirty tricks and became infamous in the 2016 election, but is not the first example of it, is, you know, covert dissemination of these various scandalous exposés or disinformation on the candidate that you didn't want, you know, to win. Another method, you know, was designing for the side you preferred, you know, campaigning materials or, you know, right before the election, increasing the amount of foreign aid to the side you preferred or any other kinds of material assistance. And I know that like in a country like Nicaragua, during the Nicaraguan elections in the late 1980s, there was this slogan that was widely disseminated in the media and there were posters to this effect saying, your vote is secret. And it kind of comes across as being straightforward. And of course, it's, it was true that Nicaraguan, Nicaraguans were voting in their elections and their vote was secret. But it seemed at the time to be a kind of a, a coded statement for saying, hey, you can vote against the Sandinistas if you want, and you're not going to get into trouble. So somebody came up with that slogan. Of course, the slogan simply stated what was true, that Nicaraguans had the right to vote in secret, but it wasn't that that slogan was interpreted as kind of suggesting to people, hey, you don't need to be scared. You can vote against the Sandinistas. And of course, the Sandinistas ended up losing, you know, not so much because there was this slogan, your vote is secret. But the point I'm getting at is that at the time, the idea was that this, this slogan had been cooked up by you know, American Americans who were down there in Nicaragua uh, trying to influence the election, and it was really subtle, right? Your vote is secret. You, you get what I'm saying? Yes, I mean, I about that particular slogan, I unfortunately don't know who cooked it up, 
But I do know that the United States intervened in the 1990 Nicaraguan elections pretty heavily and intensely in an attempt, you know, to make sure that the Sandinistas do not win it. So we do know, for example, that um, there was uh, significant covert funding to, you know, you know, to Chamorro uh, before the election that, you know, um, we provide that, you know, there was a, a provision of, um, of various, you know, campaigning materials as well for this purpose. And that we also, you know, that know, for example, that the CIA before the elections basically uh, gave German newspapers information showing, um, uh, we don't know whether it was true or not, you know, evidence of, uh, of Sandinista involvement in uh, corruption and, you know, having Swiss bank accounts. And then, you know, these German newspapers published it. And then, you know, the UN, you know, used it, you know, to great effect, you know, um, benefit, uh, you know, their election campaign, so to speak. And, you know, we also know that uh, basically about three months before the election, you know, uh, right after Chamorro visited the United States, we, the United States basically promised that it would remove its trade embargo on Nicaragua and assist, you know, Nicaragua in economic reconstruction if Chamorro would be elected. So the United States intervened pretty heavily in this election in various ways in an attempt to prevent the Sandinistas from winning. Yes. And it isn't always entities like the Central Intelligence Agency, actual instruments of, of the U.S. government that intervene in elections. It's often uh, non-governmental organizations such as the Democratic Republican Institute, the Democratic uh, National Institute and the Republican National Institute, I'm not sure if these entities still exist, organizations like Freedom House, which are ostensibly private, non-governmental. Well, um, they, they, just to clarify in this regard, of course, you know, um, 99 per, these organizations still exist and 99% of the activities are completely neutral and benign, so to speak. You know, it seems like, you know, empowering women or things like that. But it is true that nevertheless, in a few cases, bodies like the RNI and the NDI have been used by the United States in order to intervene in elections in other countries. Yes, you know, by, for example, giving biased assistance to only one side, so to speak, you know, training only one side in uh, campaigning techniques or, you know, only giving one side, you know, assistance in uh, in. Uh, you know, various uh, materials they needed, you know, in order to, uh, um, you know, run an effective campaign, so to speak. So in some cases, again, it's a small percentage of what these organizations do, but in a few cases, they were used by the U.S. government, which is the main funder of the NDI and IRI for uh, this purpose. Tell me about some other instances where this has happened, such as, for example, in, in Czechoslovakia, the United States intervening on behalf of Václav Havel. Tell me about that. Well, uh, we know from what we know, basically, um, we uh, basically um, provided them before the election campaign game, like, for example, party training on how to organize uh, their party, which, you know, is very important for what were basically protest movements until that point, you know. How to do, you know, get out the vote, campaigning, fundraising methods. We also gave them, you know, campaign funding, you know, both indirect, you know, like, for example, 
providing them equipment, like, for example, fax machines and computers, which was a big issue because there was this whole, you know, currency convertibility issues in this period. So this this equipment was not, you could not, you know, go on the equivalent of Amazon in 1990 and just purchase it at the time in, in the Czechoslovakia, as well as, you know, some direct campaign funding of about $400,000 uh, in total. And um, we also know that Freedom House gave um, newsprint to the newspaper of the Civic Forum, um, what's the name you call it? Um, and, in, and in these ways, you know, it was a major assistance, you know, to Václav Havel and his party in this election. In, in what other countries has the United States interfered in the electoral process? Well, it intervened in uh, 47, uh, sorry, 48 different countries around the world between uh, 46 and 2000 in uh, every continent except uh, North America and Oceania. And has the U.S. interfered in Russian elections? Um, yes, the United States intervened in the 1996 uh, Russian uh, presidential election for Boris Yeltsin. And the basic thing that happened uh, in this case was basically that uh, um, there were that Yeltsin was in a really bad uh, political uh, shape. He, you know, um, he was polling in late 1995, according to Russian polls. He was the last candidate of five and was polling in single digits. And uh, basically. The other candidates, the United States saw them as, you know, very uh, threatening. You know, one of the leading candidates was the one of the communist parties, Yuganov. And the United States was really worried that if he would come back to power, then he would, you know, uh, basically reverse the economic reforms and restart the Cold War. Another one was um, this, uh, was, um, what's name you call it, uh, a guy who was this um, hard uh, right candidate, um, his name slips from my mind, um, but he was basically a guy who just was literally released a few years ago from a mental asylum, and he was talking about, you know, um, getting back from the United States, Alaska, so to speak. So the United States was naturally very worried about him. So given those situations, it decided to intervene for Yeltsin and try to um, help him win that election. So, for example, we, the United States um, uh, persuaded the IMF to give the Russia a very big loan before the election of about $10.2 billion. And that was the second largest loan given by the IMF at the time ever. And this was although Russia was not at the time eligible, according you know, to IMF criteria, to getting such a loan. And of about that $10 billion, a $1.3 billion arrived before this election into Russia. So, you know, it helped yet since pre-election pork barreling. You know, like, for example, he paid, you know, government workers their salaries, which they were not getting for months in advance. So naturally, they were having, you know, a more positive perspective about him. And likewise, under American pressure, the World Bank also gave very big loans in June 1996 to Russia, you know, like, $270 million to improving, you know, healthcare services and things like that. We also know that the United States secretly sent free American spin doctors to help him with this campaign, you know, giving him campaigning advice, plotting strategy, running focus groups, you know, and improving the polling and advertising techniques and so forth. 
and that significantly improved the quality of his uh, election campaign. And um, as a result, it played an important role in making sure that he uh, won uh, that presidential election. Have you uncovered any evidence of U.S. interference in the elections in uh, developed Western democracies, such as those in Germany or the U.K. or France or Australia or Canada? Yes, uh, I mean, uh, the United States, for example, intervened in the 1953 uh, West uh, German elections for the then leader of Germany, C Chancellor Konrad Adenauer. And basically, the reason was it was really worried that, uh, that the SPD, you know, the Social uh, Democrats, if they would win, would kill a plan, uh, a, a plan for a new uh, European organization called the EDC. So, for example, a few days before the election, the then U.S. Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, basically threatened uh, that uh, if uh, the Germans uh, don't elect Adenauer, then that would lead, quote-unquote, to disastrous consequences to Germany. And, you know, this was eight years after World War II, so everyone got, you know, the hint in Germany, so to speak. Um, likewise, we know that the United States intervened in the 1987 uh, elections uh, in, um, in the UK for uh, Margaret Thatcher, so to speak. And that basically uh, we know that, um, we know that uh, in, in this election, you know, after uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, made uh, a request in, in, in uh, this uh, particular uh, regard, so to speak, that uh, that basically the United States publicly agreed, for example, for a UK veto on any future arm controls agreements between the United States and the Soviet Union that could, you know, affect uh, British defense policies. You know, and this was in a period which, you know, as you may recall, it was right after Rajkivik, I hope I'm pronouncing the capital correctly, of Iceland. So... So this was a major American concession. And, you know, it was also involved, you know, the provision of the Trident and the continued denial of American arms to uh, Argentina. So we know that, for example, they intervened also in um, British elections in uh, 1987. They also intervened in basically every Italian election between 1948 and 1983, except for 1979. Dov Levin, are there practical outcomes to your research? What use is it to know that the United States has really intervened in more elections overseas than the, the Russians have interfered in American elections or in elections in other countries. Why is this important for Americans to know, or anyone to know for that matter? Well, um, I, this data that I collected was not just designed, you know, to give everyone, you know, the numbers, but also that in order for us to be able to do um, uh, statistical analyses of the effects of these things in various ways. So I find, for example, if to give two examples, that these type of interventions have, can have frequently very significant effects on election results in their target. So I find, for example, in one of my uh, recent papers with, uh, that um, on average interventions of this kind increase the vote share of the side being assisted by 3% on average, which again is not enough to determine the election result always, but frequently is a very nice boost, so to speak. Uh, in another new paper of mine, I find that these interventions can have, you know, pretty negative effects, like, for example, on the frequency of terrorism in the target. 
And I find that basically um, overt interventions of these kinds increase the probability of, um, of domestic terrorism occurring in the target afterwards. And I find that uh, on average, they increase the probability of new terrorist groups forming by about 11%, and the overall amount of terrorist attacks in the target uh, by another 152%. So this uh, data collection was not just done, you know, that we all know the numbers, but also in order for us to be able to analyze what are the effects of these type of interventions and to better understand when and why they occur. Dov Levin, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Green Blues Show. I was, I was happy to be invited. Dov Levin is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Politics and Strategy at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. His research focuses on the origins and impacts of partisan electoral interventions by the great powers. For a link to Levin's work, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. Here's a tune called You've Got to Reap What You Sow. You got to reap, you got to reap. You got to reap just what you sow. to reap what you sow, Arthur Big Boy Crudup, recorded in September of 1946, accompanied by Ransom Nolling on bass and Lawrence Judge Riley on drums, the same session that produced That's Alright Mama, famously covered by You Know Who. The most widely used class of insecticides poses a major threat to honeybees, bumblebees, and other wild pollinators crucial for flowering plant reproduction. This is the conclusion of a report. It's just been released by the European Food Safety Authority. A total ban on neonicotinoid pesticides may be enacted by the European Union next month. Insects are not the only creatures bathed in hazardous chemicals. We humans are awash in a sea of toxics many of them known endocrine disruptors and carcinogens, compounds like triclosan, parabens, bisphenol A, and assorted phthalates are present in a wide range of household products. 
I spoke about this with Maggie McDonald from Environmental Defense Canada. EWG, which is a U.S. environmental charity, and ourselves um, separately have done tests on uh, looking at industrial chemicals um, in the human body, uh, but we're not we're not looking at a complete inventory. The research that we've done hasn't been okay. Here's every possible chemical that could be in us. Uh, we've looked at you know we'll select a list of chemicals that might be there, and then we test to see if they are. So a few and years ago, find? so in 2012, we did a test. Uh, for 300 chemicals, for about 300 chemicals in cord blood uh, of newborns. So we looked f to see if there's 300 flame retardants, um, PFC, so the chemicals used in like nonstick coatings and stuff like that, banned pesticides, pesticides currently used, a range of chemicals that might appear. We did uh, tests on a few samples to see how many appeared. And I, I think we found about 120 of those chemicals actually were present in the samples. Um, some of these at very low levels, but it is interesting to see that um, something like a banned pesticide like DDT still appears in human bodies all these years later because it doesn't break down very well. So even chemicals that are banned can still be uh, found in our systems. These are persistent organics. Exactly, yeah. So um, so uh, what's interesting is that we were testing for a limited range of these chemicals, um, but people who are interested in what chemicals are appearing in the bodies of Canadians specifically have a few resources they can look to. So Statistics Canada has a program called the Canadian Health Measures Survey, and uh, that program looks at um, the uh, amount and, and patterns of, of which chemicals are appearing in Canadian bodies. But again, they're not looking at a list of 80,000 chemicals and seeing what's there in each person. What they're doing is saying uh, they'll go on a chemical by chemical basis. And so they take feedback from stakeholders, from the public on what chemicals should they be looking for as they cont continue to conduct their research. Um, but it's uh, they look at certain pesticides, at phenols, BPA, um, uh, flame retardants. So there's a range of mercury. They look at a range of chemicals uh, and then see if those are appearing in the bodies of Canadians. And so there's really interesting data on this from Statistics Canada that people might be interested in. Um, yeah. And these, these compounds are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, they're in the foods we eat. They're mm -hmm. in the drinks that we drink. They're, they're in our clothing and our bedding. Mm -hmm. They're in all our, our, our personal hygiene and, 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 and health products. And, and mm -hmm. they're everywhere. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, really, walking through Toronto, they're in the air. Um, it's astonishing to think of the, the, the abundance of foreign chemical compounds, organic chemical compounds that are alien to the human body that mm -hmm. we're just bathed in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting, and and some of these, you know, on a on a day to day, you know, we're 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 exposed to numerous chemicals, and one thing that. Uh, is uh, an interesting thing to note is that the skin is the largest organ of the body. So people tend to think of, um, say you buy a moisturizer product and it has a really strong odor, a heavily fragranced odor. Um, well, um, when you slap that on your skin, it doesn't just stay on your skin and then come off in your shower later. Um, this Many of those chemicals do get absorbed by the skin and, and can enter the bloodstream. So um, 
you know, the body is very sensitive. And, and what we tell people when we do our educational workshops is uh, we don't want people to just panic and go into kind of a shock over thinking, you know, in an overwhelmed way about why well, I'm exposed to tons of stuff. It's true. We are exposed to uh, numerous chemicals throughout the day. Many of those are industrial pollutants or pollutants from consumer products uh, that can have um, negative health impacts or negative environmental impacts. Uh, that is true. Um, but you know, people can get to feeling overwhelmed when they learn that. So what we try to talk about is helpful information about ways to reduce exposure, uh, ways to conduct advocacy to get certain chemicals banned or phased out, either through bans by the federal government on the use of those chemicals, or by pushing corporations to practice safer chemistry and phase out certain chemicals. So um, we do try to talk about this in, uh, in a way that's educational, but also empowering so that people feel um, that uh, a, a sense of the range of options that we have for for impacting uh, toxic pollution and producing toxic pollution. Maggie McDonald was with Environmental Defense Canada when we spoke last year. Read more about Environmental Defense Canada's kicking out toxic chemicals campaign at greenplanetmonitor.net. Here's a song about toxic love. I love you, baby. 
He asked his baby for water and she gave him gasoline. Still, he wants to know when she's coming back home. Chester Burnett, the howling wolf, recorded this at Chess Records in July 1956. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Speaking of gasoline and the problems it fuels, consider this. Justin Trudeau and Canada's oil-rich province of Alberta say that greenhouse gas reduction targets can only be achieved by digging more and more bitumen out of filthy tar sands and piping it to the British Columbia coast for delivery to fossil fuel burning nations around the world. The BC government will have nothing of the sort, however, and says it won't let the Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan pipeline be built until its environmental safety is assured. In search of wisdom about this novel idea that climate action can flow from oil and gas pipelines, I spoke with John Bennett. Bennett is a veteran climate campaigner and senior policy advisor with Friends of the Earth. John's audio is a bit shaky. Apologies. John, a recent uh, quote from uh, Mr. Trudeau, by blocking the Kinder Morgan pipeline, uh, British Columbia Premier John Horgan uh, is putting the entire national climate plan at risk. It sounds like a classic example of having your cake and eating eating it too, or voodoo climate change reductions, this notion that we can achieve long-term reductions by continuing to build pipelines indefinitely into the future. Yeah, well, I don't think they would argue it indefinitely in the future, but it is an incredible mind bend to, get, to try to put your mind around how this can possibly be how Canada reduces its emissions. Um, there's just a refusal to acknowledge that fundamental to dealing with climate change is the is getting rid of fossil fuels. And despite the fact that, you know, one or two provinces are highly invested and highly dependent upon the production of fossil fuels, um, we still have to deal with the fact that we have to get off them in order to reduce our emissions and to help the world reduce its emissions. It doesn't help help Canada a whole lot to reduce its emissions, um, but then export millions of barrels of oil every day to other countries where they're, where they're burned. And now we have this announcement that Alberta is planning to build five bitumen upgraders, a billion dollars in loan guarantees and grants, and five billion dollars in investments uh, into the future. It seems it's mind-boggling that they would be investing so much money into infrastructure, obviously looking 30 or 40 years down the road when one would imagine will be largely, if not completely, off fossil fuels. I mean, is this sort of plan to build all these bitumen upgraders consistent with Canada's Paris commitments? I don't think so. Um, it's certainly... Uh naive to believe that there's going to be a need for fossil fuels in, in 40 years. Um, it may help in the short term in terms of creating better markets for bitumen if it's upgraded properly. Um, we are going to need, you know, even the most diehard climate campaigner like me admits that we're going to need oil for quite some time. Um, maybe not to, to continue to burn it in cars and in furnaces, but oil can produce a lot of plastics and other valuable commodities. So we have to be able to understand what, what, what it's going to be used for. Uh, but we certainly can't 
you know, in, this, in the debate about expanding pipelines, we certainly do not need to expand pipelines. You know, it, why should we be, especially the people in Montreal, in, in Vancouver and Barnaby, uh, take the risks uh, because a bunch of fossil fuel companies in the province of Alberta and the government of Canada um, thought it would be a good idea to expand the, expand the production of, of bitumen to such an extent that it overran the ability to for, for, the, for that product to be distributed. Um, that's their responsibility, their fault. Um, if they overexpanded without without in, without securing where how they were going to transport it, but it still doesn't take. When we go back to the question of climate change, you know, we should be taking those billions of dollars in loan guarantees and investing them in products and services that help us get where we're going, keep our houses warm. Um, generate our electricity without creating creating emissions, um, and that those investments could go a long way to accomplishing that. Um, and when we start to try to calculate how Canada could reduce its emissions, um, and you know the target is actually to reduce them to zero, um, you can't do it while continuing to expand emissions from the tar sands. And I have one point to really make clear here is that the deal that Canada struck with Alberta has Alberta putting a cap on its greenhouse gas emissions from the tar sands at a number higher than it already is. So the number that their, their supposed cap is actually an increase. And so that would be that would be a cap, what, uh, so many megatons per year? So many megatons per year coming from the fossil fuel industry in, in Alberta. This is exactly what uh, the Alberta government has been demanding um, since the 1990s, since Canada went and signed the Kyoto Agreement in 1997, um, Alberta has been putting a gun to the rest of the country's head saying, well, yeah, we can reduce our emissions, but, only, but we have to be allowed to continue increasing our emissions uh, because that's how we're going to make our money. And there's no, going to be no two ways about it. That's what's going to happen. Um, we'll do other things to try and reduce emissions, but we will not do anything to curtail the growth of emissions from from the oil from oil production, including tar sands and conventional, um, which has always made it really really difficult for Canada to to deal with reducing emissions because it's a major part and it's the growing part. Um, so what they have agreed to do is shut down their coal plants, which is a big deal in Alberta because they actually produce the coal for those coal plants. So it's a it's a significant move, but in the long run they're still going to run out. Um, and they're not either going to, we're either going to have to force them legally to, to reduce their emissions, or they're just going to discover that there's not the market out there, that the market is drying up. Is the, is the market drying up? Not yet, but it's going to. It, the, it's certainly not growing as rapidly as it used to. And the investments going on now, especially in China, are vast and, you know, mind-boggling in numbers in terms of their efforts to reduce their need for coal and oil. Investments in alternative energy. Basically, investments in alternative energy, electric cars. Um, so as they, as the, especially the Chinese switch, the demand for oil is going to drop. And the other question, too, for, for Canadian production is that as the demand for oil reduces, then will countries like China be interested in buying basically thick tar or bitumen when they can go to Saudi Arabia and buy, you know, first class light grade oil. So there, you know, there's a lot, you know, all this talk coming out of Alberta about how, you know, we're, 
we need other, we need another cust we need new customers because we're being forced to take a smaller price. Well, they're forced to take a smaller price not because they only have one customer in the United States, but because they're producing an inferior product. Um, it's a heavy synthetic synthetic crude that is much more costly to to process, and only specially built uh, refineries can actually deal with it. And those, most of those refineries, by the way, are in Texas because they were built to deal with heavy oil from Texas, but also heavy oil from from Venezuela. Um, so, so shipping, trying to figure out how to deal with this by shipping it to the to the West Coast um, is, you know, it, the economic argument is not there as strongly as Rachel Notley and Pierre Trudeau would put it. What should they do? What should the federal government and government of Alberta do if they take the climate change crisis seriously? Should they truly leave it in the ground and stop building pipelines as activists uh, call on them to do? Well, I think the first thing they need to do is stop expanding. Stop looking for more. Stop producing, building new production facilities um, because that's, there's not going to be a market for them. Um, and then they need to, to reinvest in trying to figure out other products they can produce from the oil that's coming out of the ground. Um, get into um, heavier into petrochemicals for the first part of the transition. And then they have to look to the future and to a future in which there's very little demand for oil in the world, um, especially for low-grade bitumen. It's a very hard thing for them to deal with. You have to keep in mind that the jobs in, oil, in the oil industry in Alberta aren't in actually the pumping it or they're producing it. It's in building the infrastructure and search and, and to search for to, to supply new facilities to produce oil and to and, and this infrastructure for looking for oil and putting them into production. Um, so they want to continue to expand. And they really believe that you know they can that what they all all they have to do is reduce the amount of emissions uh, per barrel of oil they produce and then they'll be meeting the need to reduce emissions. Uh, it's helpful but if you're reducing the emissions from when you're and and to make a product and the product is actually the problem which is causing the future emissions downstream then you can't solve the problem and that's why we've been faced with this huge conundrum in Canada for 25 years where we've had governments across the country um, fully supportive of reducing emissions and dealing with climate change but unwilling to tackle this really fundamental difficult question about how do you Tell an, tell an industry to stop growing because it's, it's bad for the country. You know, some people are now going around the country and around the world trying to organize it so that the environment can be actually built into a state constitution so that the state has a, has a constitutional responsibility to protect the environment and ensure that future generations can enjoy the planet as well as we. But we're not there yet in Canada. Um, in fact, environmental laws in Canada are an extensions uh, of the federal government's ability to uh, to to make criminal law, <laughs> they're not about a constitutional right to clean air uh, and clean water. And until we get that, then we're going to have this problem that we have today in Canada, in which we have the federal government having to cut deals and basically do a lot of shady maneuvering in order to make some progress. And we do have some progress. You know, we have a federal government that is putting, you know, billions of dollars and putting new regulations in place that are going to help to reduce emissions.
but they can't deliver on uh, a plan that rapidly forces provinces to change their sources of income. Um, you know, Alberta government is so dependent upon royalties from the fossil fuel industry um, to maintain itself that it cannot see a way out of that. So we're asking a lot of politicians. So, you know, I'm sort of sympathetic for both sides here because the rest of me says, you know, that if they decide to start building that pipeline, I'm looking for a ticket to, to, to BC to go and lie down in front of the bulldozers with everyone else because we have to stop doing it. Because for 25 years or more now, I've been kept, I'm always told is that, you know, we can't, we can't go any faster. Or, well, we'll start after we build the next thing. Um, you know, it's too difficult. Uh, you know, when do we get to the point where, you know, it's so difficult that the, the, the problem is so difficult that we actually take the action to prevent it? And I think we're there, you know. Well, although in the next, uh, who knows, it's all kind of playing with crystal balls. But uh, in 10 or 15 or 20 years, um, who, who knows when the Greenland ice sheet will suddenly slip into the ocean or, you know, some major tipping point will be exceeded. And suddenly we see, you know, major sea level rise and, uh, you know, Manhattan and the whole U.S. eastern seaboard flooded, and maybe that will provide the, the necessary resolve to engage in, in emergency action. Will it? Because, you know, wouldn't, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you know, and I see the irony, too, is that, you know, Fort McMurray burned down. And why did it burn down? It burned down because climate change altered the forest. And the expansion of the, the way the, the oil industry has expanded, it created the conditions. Uh, for, for wildfires to go insane. Um, and yet still, you know, that, wild, those, that, that wasn't enough for people in Alberta to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we're doing something wrong here. We just drove 80,000 people out of their homes and burnt down 2,500 of them. Um, but that was, and that wasn't enough for Canada to actually say, to take this really seriously. Um, so we have to figure out how to change the federal laws and provincial law so that the environment takes precedence and that that can be done. And we have to get to a point where everyone understands um, that we have to take these act, take this action, that, it's, that there isn't a political divide. As long as the conservatives are running around, you know, across the country saying, you know, we can't have carbon taxes and we're not going to, we're not going to, limit our emissions um, if we get elected and then manage to get elected places and dismantle everything that was built before them and then the liberals come get elected and they, they put it back together and then it gets dismantled again. You know, I've unfortunately been around a long enough time to have seen that happen several times. And so the real solution here is not to quibble about what Trudeau is saying and what Notley is saying, but to say, but to talk to them about how do we change the law so that we have laws that actually protect us and protect future generations. And we don't have that. You know, the Trudeau government has not passed one bit of legislation to protect the environment, to, to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it's announced, you know, it's re-announced uh, agonizing this little phase out of coal that was actually announced first by Mr. Harper. Um, and it's talking about a, a fuel standard, a clean fuel standard that'll have make a little bit of stuff. But it really has not passed a law on climate change. John Bennett, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining me on the Green Blue Show. Glad to be there. John Bennett is a senior policy advisor with Friends of the Earth. My baby don't, she don't want me.
She Don't Want Me No More. Jimmy Reed. Love Lost and Found, Getting Mistreated, The Ceaseless Foibles of Women and Men in Search of Contentment. Such is the perennial subject matter of blues men and women. What makes the minds of men and women tick? Here's something about that. Cheryl, answer me this. I, I'll, How come you can remember every sports statistic in history, but you can't remember one simple thing I told you last night? An age-old complaint in the battle of the sexes, TV actor Jim Belushi turns to brain science in his defense. It's just simple biology. The male brain is wired for like sports stats and technical stuff. And the female brain is wired to take in feelings and recipes and fashion. In the neurosciences lab at McMaster uh -huh. University in Hamilton, Ontario, Jim's male chauvinist theory is under scrutiny. And here are brains and bottles. Veteran brain researcher Sandra Whittleson shows me her collection of over a hundred brains sitting on a bench top in bottles of formaldehyde. So like here would be the main pieces of the brain in here, brain 121, and then this would be when we took out some of the individual pieces. Whittleson has been collecting human brains for years, starting with Albert Einstein's. The differences between men's and women's, especially in the language and speech regions, interest her greatly. One could go on and list literally hundreds of anatomical and chemical differences between the brains of men and women, and this would be true, you know, in, in, in other animals as well. Whittleson's studies revolve around brain lateralization, anatomical and functional differences between people's right and left cerebral hemispheres just above the ears, and their degree of connection. It appears that there is a more generalized interconnectivity in the female brain than in the male brain. The male brain is more specialized, more modified, has more independent modules. In a way, I think it's more vulnerable, and I think it has the potential for less plasticity. Women's brains are definitely different from men's brains. At a brain research unit in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Dr. Apostolos Georgopoulos and his colleagues are measuring the brain waves and cognitive skills of hundreds of healthy women, ranging in age from 30 to over 100, and following them forward in time. Other studies are being carried out on men. The differences are striking. What we have found is that women in many different tasks process information about five times faster than men. Women yeah. process women, brains? Women's brains. Process so, faster than ex men. Yeah, much faster and use much less of their brain to, to do identical cognitive performance. Apparently, female brain speed and efficiency come at a cost. Women seem to, to use certain parts of their brain much more efficiently, but if these are hit, they're in big, in big trouble. Uh, men have more distributed processing, and they are more easy to get by, you know, for, uh, you know, for damages. Back at her McMaster University brain lab, Sandra Whittleson points out that men's brains are vulnerable too. At the tender age of five weeks, male embryos get doused in testosterone, changing them and their brains forever. The male brain has undergone a sexual differentiation in utero. And if something should go wrong, 
it could affect the male brain more than the female brain. Just admit you weren't listening to me. I was listening, Cheryl. I just didn't take it in. Science is just beginning to plumb the diversity of networks in people's brains, each as unique as its owner's DNA. How the hundred billion neurons in an adult brain get hardwired, differently so in men and women, how neural circuits determine sexual or gender identity, recover from damage, or age healthily, are tantalizing mysteries. One thing is known for sure, the differences between men's and women's brains are a source of both aggravation and amusement. Okay, okay, you know, if it's biology, how come Andy hears me when I talk about that stuff? Actually, I don't. Mm. I just smile and nod, but all I hear is this hellish buzzing. I'm Dave Kattenberg. Yeah. Well, when I was your age, I had... And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Join me again next week. Bye for now.